In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is uh, January 1st, and it is it was snowy this morning, a little rainy this afternoon, and it's also New Year's Day. And so for all those reasons, it's nice to see at least some of us show up. <laughs> you guys are the ones, you're the special ops team. That's <laughs> Uh, it's also, um, so next, if you, uh, Friday is what's called Epiphany. It's kind of one of the lesser known church holidays. Um, we know Christmas. Epiphany was the first Christmas, actually. In the East, where Christianity started, Epiphany, January 6th, was when Christmas was celebrated. It was celebrated, actually, um, they celebrated the coming of Christ through his baptism. And it's still celebrated that way today in the East. The West picked up December 25th to celebrate the Nativity. Um, over time, East and West shared their traditions, and now we have both in hand. Um, and we know the East celebrated Christmas uh, in four, I want to say 401 AD. Um, it took that long for them to adopt to December 25th uh, because John Chrysostom in one of his homilies literally just says, today is the first day we're celebrating Christmas. He just says that in his homily. So it's like, oh, cool. Um, we know that. Um, so anyways, the tradition of the 12 days of Christmas was established as the days that the feast between December 25th and January 6th. So that's why we have a Christmas season is because we have two ancient dates for Christmas and uh their distance is 12 days. So we continue to celebrate Christmas, and next Sunday is the 8th. It's technically right after Epiphany, but we will we will um, use that as our Epiphany service, and so that'll be our last day of Christmas. I know tonight we're going to look at a message called Growing Through the Gospels. Growing Through the Gospels, and if you did or didn't, you don't need this to pay attention tonight, but the, the bookmarks I propose as a reading guideline for the church this year, it'd be cool if we read together. Um, I'll talk about that in a bit, but this is sort of what we're going to go over, and so you can kind of keep that to the side for now. Um, but Growing Through the Gospels, so as we go into Matthew, I would really like us to get a sense of Matthew in the context of the other three Gospels, and why do we have four? Why do we not have one giant uh, combined gospel? Uh, actually, the church once did that. And I was just reminded of this as I was talking to Cody uh, at our little break. And he reminded me that the diatessaron, if we are recalling the word right, there was a time in church history um, in the early, like, what, it's like 300, 400 AD. Uh, they, they tried to make just one gospel kind of like synchronize all four and it was an actual book that they would teach from right commentaries on but it didn't last eventually the diatestron went out of use and we still have four gospels why do we have four why do we insist on four instead of just one that's what we want to look at tonight lord guide us please through these beautiful accounts of your son christ you are present with us, in us, among us, and in the words of your life. Be a witness to us of how we are to follow you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Stories connect with us, humans, because humans live in stories. That doesn't mean we live fictional lives, but we live lives that follow the arcs of stories. Consider, stories go through change. Change is what makes a story interesting. You have this normal world, something happens and changes. And I was like, whoa, there's something that has to happen now. The change then brings conflict. You're wrestling and struggling with this change. Um, there's a fish named Marlin who has a son named Nemo. And Nemo gets stolen by a scuba diver. Change. Now there's conflict. How do I get my son back? And this long journey of the wrestling through getting the son back and wrestling with who he is and who he needs to become to really gain his son back as a good father and son relationship. So we go through change. We go through conflict. Then we go through climax where there's this moment where it all resolves. The struggle has been overcome and we are stronger for it. We have grown because of it. We are not the person we were when this started. We're now a different person. Marlin is a different fish. He's also a different father. And the story shows us this. 
Um, you can look back in your own life and see these little mini stories that you've gone through, these chapters where you have faced change, you faced conflict, and then you, you found the climax and, and you see that I grew through that. I'm a different person because of that experience. We are drawn to stories, therefore, because we find ourselves in them. We relate to them. And so story becomes a universal way of communicating to all humanity, which is why so preciously we have been given in the New Testament, not just letters from Paul explaining theology, but we have those on the backside of four stories about Jesus and his life. And these stories invite us and our stories to become his story so that we can learn and grow by following Christ and the stories. The Bible itself is a story, right? We start with Eden and this creation that God made, but then phase one, there's a change. Adam and Eve sin and corruption comes into the world. The creation is no longer as God made it. It's now corrupted. Everything dies and decays and we lose Eden. We no longer have this communion with God's life. So we become mortal and we're cut off. And so now this change produces conflict. We're in constant conflict with the devil and demons and sin. And we're trying to live the life that God is calling us to, but we fail and we fail. And the world failed so bad that they built this Tower of Babel as this huge rebellion against God. And then out of the midst of this rebellion, God calls Abraham and says, all right, let's get this straight. And Abraham produces a nation which is going to follow God. He rescues this nation out of Egypt. And as soon as they're rescued out of Egypt, they sin by worshiping a golden calf. And God's like, okay, I'm going to give you a priesthood to help you follow me. And then the priesthood ends up getting corrupt. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to give you judges. And the judges need to rescue them from their sins. And then the judges ultimately don't do it because some of these judges are pretty lame, like Samson, although heroic, but very lame. Um, and then he sends them they want kings. Kings will be the answer. I'll give you kings. It was bad at first. It got better. Then it got really bad. And so then the kings couldn't rescue them. So then God sends them prophets. And the prophets try to direct them, but the people don't listen to the prophets. They kill the prophets. And so ultimately Israel, like Adam and Eve, go into exile and they are cut off from the life of God. And so the conflict and the tension is just building and building and building until it snaps and it breaks and it feels like there's no hope. And so we have all this silence between the Old and New Testament. Centuries go by, and then we turn the page, and we find the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now we're being brought from that story from Abraham all the way up to Christ through Matthew's genealogy. We're given a story. Here's the climax is what Matthew says. We've seen the change to God's world. We've seen the conflict of trying to get back to God. Now here's the climax. Christ will accomplish what everything else could not accomplish. So the Bible moves through a story. We move through stories. And the Gospels are telling stories to help lead our stories into the proper climax in Christ. That's what I want us to look at. This is and, and the reason the church um, decided to keep four Gospels instead of making one mega Gospel because they realized there was wisdom in each of the four Gospels. We often talk about these four gospels being like four witnesses that stand on different street corners and witness an accident, right? An event happens and they're all seeing it from different angles. That's a, that's a good starting way to talk about it, but really it's much deeper than that. They're not just reporting same events from different angles. They're actually trying to lead us, um, to Christ, to our growth in Christ in very specific and different stages of our growth. Each of them are addressing us at different places. And so they present Christ to us, not as four different faces, not just four different perspectives, but as four stages in our faith. We often in our culture get saved. That's the climax of our lives. We find Christ and then it's like, what do I do with the rest of this unending last chapter of my story? We don't know what to do. What the gospel writers were wanting to do, and hopefully I can show you some of this briefly, um, is that they want to, they're writing to Christians. They're not writing to save the world. The gospel writers are writing to Christian communities who already know and believe in Christ, and they're answering 
hey, Christ wasn't just the climax. He's actually the beginning of a new chapter. And now you have more climax to grow toward. There's more to do in Christ. So the gospel writers come alongside the church and say, here's the next step. Here's the next step. Here's the next step. So I want to look at growing through the gospels, how the four of them take us through four seasons of growth. Uh, If you can think of this, uh, you have fall. Fall is a season of change. And this is when things begin to turn. Uh, Ancient societies actually saw fall. Israel's calendar, for example, saw fall as the beginning of the new year. Always in the fall is when you start things afresh because the leaves are turning and they're going to become, they're going to come to their full fruition at the end of the year, right? They're going to come to their fruit. Fall's the beginning. Change happens. Winter is phase two. There's a death. There's suffering. Things are hard and harsh. Some places it's hard to find food. It's hard to stay warm. Spring brings new hope because the death is now going away and life is coming. And then the summer is the pinnacle when all of the cycle has now brought us to its climax where the trees and the, the, the creation is all buzzing with life and activity and it's come to its fruition, ready to be harvested at the end of summer. Um, so that's, that's how the seasons move. The gospels move in a similar pattern. So we'll start with, uh, Matthew and then we'll, work through them. So Matthew is going to be phase one. Matthew is addressing the need to grow through change. Change happens. How do we grow through it? Matthew writes to a community that's going through deep change. Mark is going to answer, how do we grow through suffering? Mark is writing to a community that is suffering. He says, this is what we do in suffering. And then John writes to a community that needs to learn how to receive joy. And so how do we receive joy? How do we, instead of trying to make joy happen, how do we receive it? And how do we receive it responsibly? And how do we not get stuck in selfishness when we find joy? And then Luke wants to um, finalize all this by saying, how do we grow in serving? How do we mature as God's people and take all of this to the world? So Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke is the order. Uh, you might wonder, why doesn't it go in the order that we have it in the Bible? Well, they put John on the end because he just reads very differently. But in the history of the church, John has always been read in the springtime because it's a gospel of new life and growth and the resurrection of Christ. And so John properly, historically and traditionally fits on that third piece. But so let's look at these now in detail. Matthew, how do we grow through change? Because this is where our journey always begins. You and I will never grow If change doesn't happen, we will sit in our comfort zones forever. We all want it. In fact, change is knocking on the door all the time. Opportunities to step out and we continually say, nope, 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 I'm comfortable. Until a moment happens when the change is unavoidable. Now, our community, especially our church, has really had to face change since COVID-19 started. Everyone faced change then, but our change just hasn't stopped. Um, just with all of the changes here on, in this property and community, um, it's, it's been just, what is it, like three years now of just facing change. I feel like I can relate a lot to Matthew's gospel in this way. How do we face change? It's like, Matthew, let's talk, buddy, because, man, we've got some experience with change. Bible College also has experience with change, as they are part of the reason we're going through change, but they're going through a lot of change and coming up here. And there's just been change in our, in our little niche here. Um, change, though, is a good thing. And that's what gospel, the Gospel of Matthew wants to say, is change is hard to accept, but we have to know who brings the change. And we have to see where he's going to take us through the change. So here's what Matthew's doing. Um, we're not 100% sure on like where the Gospels were written and when, but the scholarship's getting a lot of good guesswork, and some of this is up in the air still, but this seems to, I'm presenting what seems to make sense. That Matthew writes from Antioch. It's a city up north. It's about a week's journey north of Jerusalem. Antioch is in what's today southern Turkey. And this was the Jews' favorite uh, getaway spot. Um, I don't know if you know this, but in like New York and Boston, people tend to um, spend a lot of time in Florida when it gets really cold. 
Florida is like the second home for a lot of people in the Northeast. Um, for Jerusalem, the second home was up in Antioch. There was such a big synagogue in Antioch that it was considered the second temple. And it had some of the artifacts of the temple, some of like the tools and vessels and stuff in that synagogue. So Antioch became known as the Jerusalem away from Jerusalem. A huge Jewish population was there. And anytime Jerusalem was in trouble, because it often was in trouble, because the Jews were often rebellious and not obeying the empires that controlled them, they would often flee and go up to Antioch as a reprieve when bad stuff was happening. Um, now, Antioch, he's probably writing in the 70s. And this is an important date because the 70s is when Jerusalem went through really bad turmoil. Uh, from 66 AD, the Jews start getting, there's a lot of tension building in Jerusalem. And then in 70 AD, finally it snaps and Rome is tired of dealing with the temple and the Jews. And so they go in and they slaughter the priesthood. They burned down the temple, removing stone from stone. It was a tragic, horrible event for the Jews. And um, what they saw as a symbol of God's presence with them, his covenant with them, the temple and its sacrifices and its worship were completely severed. And they still haven't remained. They haven't been brought, they haven't resumed to this day. And so now you can imagine Jews who have saw this as the core of their religion now completely gone. The questions are being raised. Where is God in this? Why has he done this? Why has he abandoned us? Why is the temple destroyed? What do we do now? Where do we go? This is massive change for the Jews. And of course, in the midst of this, a lot of them flee north to Antioch. And it is in Antioch where a lot of the Pharisees are hanging out because they escaped the persecution against the priesthood because they weren't priests. They weren't in the temple. Pharisees were just people who went around who loved to study the Torah and basically made sure everyone was keeping it because they wanted to see the Messiah come. And so the Pharisees are up there and you have a lot of Jewish Christians up there in Antioch. And so now there are these discussions of God has changed on us. What is going on? What do we do without the temple? Now, to you and I, this is not a big question because we have been raised in a world where there's no Jewish temple. We know, oh yeah, the church is now the temple. But this was not how early Christians assumed it at first. They, we see in Acts, that the disciples went to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were still practicing Judaism as they followed Christ. It wasn't until, we'll see in a moment later, that that became a very different thing. But so there's all kinds of questions. There's a community going, what do we do now? And Matthew says, okay, in the midst of this change, I'm going to tell the story of Jesus, a story they already know. You'll notice that Matthew does not go out of his way to explain things that we want explained. Virgin conception? How did that happen? Matthew just says it matter-of-factly. You noticed that from last time, right? Just matter-of-factly says it. Why? Matthew's not writing for historical reasons. He's writing for practical reasons. We just are now asking questions about what do we do without the temple? What do we do without just Judaism is like destroyed? What do we do? This is what we do. We see that this was God's plan from the beginning. This is his plan from the beginning. God has shifted his work from Torah and temple where he used to work. He's now moved it into Christ and the church. This is now where God is working. It's not that God jumped ship and said, I'm done with this. I'm now over here. It's that Torah and temple were like a seed and it flourished and it grew and it finally grew fruit. And the fruit of the Torah and the temple, the fruit of Judaism looked like Christ and the church. This is where it was headed all along. And so now that the temple and the Torah now that this is here, these are not, they're, they're now, their purpose is Christ in the church. And so Matthew's writing to this community in trouble and saying, this is the change that's happening. The change is of God and the change is permanent. So um, where do we go now? We go up the mountain to find Christ. That's where we go now. Because the temple is a mountain. The temple, all temples were seen as the pinnacles of mountains. Uh, you had a series of steps to go up in the mountain. You had zones to enter into. Um, and of course, at the very center was 
the deity in all temples. And of course, the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. These temples were put on mountains so that worshipers had to climb the mountain. For Israel, it was Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham sacrificed, almost sacrificed Isaac, his son. Like this is a very holy site, right? And it's on a mountain. But now this mountain is crumbled. It's no longer the mountain that it was. They need a new mountain. And so what Matthew writes is that Jesus is the new mountain and the church is the new temple on this new mountain. So he writes about the ascendancy of a new people, a new people. So the mountain is actually a prominent theme in Matthew. You'll notice um, that uh, the Sermon on the Mount says he climbed a mountain and gave the sermon. Now, technically, it's not, a, historically, it's not a mountain. It's a hill. You go to the Sea of Galilee, there are hills. There's no mountain that Jesus climbs. And if he did, what's he doing? Shouting down to everyone below really loud? No, he's on a hill. But Matthew's point is that what Christ does in the Sermon on the Mount is he, he is building for us the new mountain, the new Torah that we are to build our lives upon. And once we climb this mountain and we learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then Matthew shows Jesus on another mountain where he's transfigured before his disciples. And this is what we see. We see the new glory, the new holy of holies, the new temple of God in its beauty if we're willing to climb the mountain of change. And then the story ends with the last mountain in Galilee, it says um, Jesus met, it's an unnamed mountain. It says that he met them at a mountain in Galilee and there they saw him and worshiped him. And then he commissioned them, go into all the nations for I am with you to the end of the age. We're going through change. Change feels like a mountain. It feels insurmountable. It feels challenging and hard. But we make our way up. We learn the teachings of Christ. We get to the top and we have a new vision of the transfigured, glorified Christ. And then as we come down the mountain, he tells us, I am with you wherever this change leads you. I'm with you to the end of the age. And so we get to, those are the three prominent mountains in Matthew's gospel and how they guide us. Um, also the book itself addresses change, right? It addresses change through the genealogy. The genealogy has surprising figures in it. We've, we've talked about these like Tamar and, uh, Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And you're like, what are they doing here? And it's like, that's the idea. God never does his thing in a straight linear line. It's often got curves. And anytime you climb a mountain, <clears throat> we all know it's very windy on your way up. And that's how God works. That's what the genealogy is saying. It's like, look at this curveball and look at this sidestep. And we got to be on our toes as we follow God through change. Um, the story of Joseph right after that, Mary becomes pregnant. Change. This was not in his plan. This was the message right before Christmas, right? We, how Joseph almost stole Christmas. Um, he wasn't planning this and yet he had to go through this change and the angel visited him and said this change is of god so receive it as his new work so through the stages that we see in these beginning parts of matthew like the characters are facing change christ is born in bethlehem and then herod wants to kill him take the child and go to egypt why egypt why do we have to go there? Why can't we go up to Galilee or something? Because God in change always is calling us back to things that we need to fix up, our past. Sometimes our past has to be fixed before we can move forward. And so Joseph is, has to uproot the family and go to a new place. And then they get to come back out of Egypt and come back into the land. There's change all throughout. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this really interesting moment. Matthew's gospel emphasizes when Judas betrays Jesus, that Jesus says something astonishing to Judas. Do you know what he says to Judas? Judas kisses him, right? Friend, uh, or what is it? You betray me with a kiss. But then he says, yes, that's it. Friend, do what you came to do. Now, this is really important because Judas betrays him. Judas is the turncoat, the changeling. When we go through change, it feels like God or the people that the change is happening to have betrayed us. Why is this happening? Why have you let me down? Why are things not the way they were? Why do I have to change my life because you're changing things? Sometimes it can feel like betrayal. 
And what Jesus is teaching us there in the garden is change is not betrayal. That betrayal, what feels like betrayal, it can become your friend if you allow God to do his work through what's happening. And so we have to look at our changes. We have to look at the betrayals in our lives and say, friend, embrace it. Do what you came to do. And only then do we move to season number two. So season number two is Mark. Change brings suffering, doesn't it? (laughs) Suffering. Mark helps us to navigate suffering. Mark is writing in Rome in the 60s. He's writing a a century, a decade before Matthew. The 60s are, were very, very troubling times in Rome. Um, you guys know about the great fires in Rome. And uh, Nero needed to blame someone. The emperor needed to blame someone. So he blames the Jewish Christians who were on the other side of the river in this really bad part of town. That part of town didn't burn. And besides, the Jews were always a problem. Twice before this decade, they had been expelled from Rome. And they had only been recently brought back into Rome. Now there's this big problem. The Senate is mad with, 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 uh, Nero. They think he started the fires and he maybe did. And so he needs, we know what the Senate can do to an emperor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Julius Caesar, right? Um, Nero needs to get them off his back. So he blames this very different, very cultish type of people, right? Right? They're, they're not Romans. Um, so he blames them. And so the soldiers come and they start asking for people who follow Christ. Now, a lot of Jews would have said, oh, no, we don't follow Christ. We're just Jews. Like, we've always been obedient to the emperor. But the the ones over there, they follow Christ. Mm -hmm. And so here we see this wedge beginning to form where Jews and Christians are being distinguished because of fear of persecution. And so they're rounding up Christians. They're putting them in the the Circus Maximus, which is before the Colosseum. This is where they did some of their entertainment. They're, they're, They're killing Christians for spectacle. And this is, this is a really hard time for Christians in Rome. Peter and Paul are executed during this time. And so Mark is writing to a community that is facing suffering. What do we do? Well, so Mark writes not with the birth stories, right? We always notice that, right? Why does Mark not have anything to do with Christmas? Because Mark is not writing a historical story. He's writing a practical story. So he's getting right to what's important. He opens up with someone coming out of the wilderness, John the Forerunner. Why John the Forerunner? Because John is beheaded for God. John suffers. He's persecuted. He becomes an example right up front to the Christians in Rome. Jesus, of course, later too. Um, He also comes out of the wilderness and he's baptizing people in the river. Mark is going to have an emphasis in his gospel on the wilderness, two kinds of wilderness, wilderness of land, we're in a barren waste place and wilderness of water, which is also a barren place, but water is unstable, water is unpredictable, you can't control it. And so therefore water symbolizes anxiety. And we know this, that the Jews really disliked water. And the belief behind this might be because um, of the flood. We, when we read about the flood, the flood, it says that the waters came down out of the heavens, but it also came up through the cracks of the earth. And so from both places, the world was flooded. And so what is thought is that the Jews feared water, large bodies of water, um, like the Sea of Galilee, like the River Jordan, uh, like the ocean, because your question is, where did all this water come from? What if at the bottom of this water, there's a crack that the waters from the deep are coming up out of? And if there's a crack there, then that means there's an entrance into the underworld, Hades or Sheol in the both languages, the place of the dead. And so there's this fear and anxiety about bodies of water. And four times Mark has Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee with the disciples and something's happening every time. He calms a storm in one of them. In another one, he walks on the water right beside them. Uh, Jesus is teaching them. Um, through Mark's gospel, how to handle things you can't control, this suffering, this anxiety. And so memorably, Jesus is asleep on the boat and the disciples pray to him. They cry out to him, save us. And he does. What Mark wants us to know in our sufferings is that Jesus is at peace with us in the suffering. 
He isn't jumping off the boat in panic saying, I'm so sorry I messed your life up. I'm out of here. He's with us in a way that is without panic. And we call to him and he will calm the storm when it's time. Um, climatically in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8, they come to Caesarea Philippi. This is 8 verse 27. Caesarea Philippi is a very interesting place. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. And there um, springs come up out of the ground. And these springs form streams which feed the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is formed from the springs at Caesarea Philippi. Because of this, because of these fissures from the ground from which the water comes out of, ancient people called Caesarea Philippi the gates to Hades because it's the cracks of the underworld uh, that the spring waters are coming out of. And this is why Jesus at this place tells his disciples, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. He's making a very clear distinction. But what Mark is showing us is here at the very source of our fears and of evil, he's saying, stand here and know who I am. Because it's right there at Caesarea Philippi at the entrance to the gates of Hades, of death, of suffering. Think of the Romans, Roman Christians who are facing their own coming and pending death. And Jesus is standing there and he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter, their answers, you are the son of the living God. What Mark wants us to do in our suffering is to stand right there at the darkest point and say who Jesus is. He is the one who's victorious over the grave and over death. And so we have nothing to fear because he's the one who raises us. And from that moment in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes toward Jerusalem. And he keeps talking about his coming suffering. And so he becomes an example. And so what Mark wants us to know is that when we suffer, your suffering is not the end point of your story. This is not where your story ends. It's where your story begins. Because when Jesus dies, he is raised. And now we have a third phase, a third season of life. So Mark wants to encourage us through suffering. Jesus is with us in it. Um, Mark also, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can feel abandoned in our suffering. Um, When he says that, he's citing Psalm 22. The first lines of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means he's praying Psalm 22, which is a psalm that Jews prayed. They wanted to be, they wanted to pray Psalm 22 every day so that when they died, Psalm 22 would be found on their lips. Here Jesus dies with Psalm 22 on his lips. Why Psalm 22? Because it's a psalm about being abandoned. And we always remember those first lines and how it connects with Jesus in the cross. But lesser known is going through the whole psalm to the end, where the psalm actually pivots dramatically from pain to praise. And it has some really high praise at the end about how God for all generations will be praised. Even people not yet born will come and praise him, it ends with. What that saying is, in our suffering, it's not the end. God is not going to die, and his love for us is not going to die. Generations yet born will praise him. This is not the end of your story. So keep going. Mark encourages us. That brings us to the third phase, the Gospel of John, and joy. We go through change. Change brings suffering as we wrestle through it. And it reveals these deeper things that need to die within us, that we need to give over and have crucified with Christ. But then suffering's not where it ends. We eventually come out of the tomb. We emerge in the springtime of new life, of new creation. And that's how John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the word. We are a new creation in Christ. And from that first opening line, John uh, weaves the seam of creation through his gospel. From um, in the beginning was the word. We then have Jesus performing the seven signs, the seven miracles, because these are the new seven creative acts of creation. Um, He then has the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I all seven of them. This is to pattern the life of Jesus as the foundation of a new creation. And John wants to encourage the Christian There is joy in this journey. It's really hard, but there is joy in this journey. 
So, John is writing in Ephesus in the 90s. He's the last guy to write. He, all the other apostles are dead. John's looking back and now he's, he's celebrating in a very unique way this, the life of Jesus. Um, Ephesus is an interesting place. It's, um, a very important city, very diverse and very affluent. Um, so the church being established there was really unique to a lot of people because here you have a lot of people from different walks of life coming together in harmony, in joy, in union. And John wants to write to the church and say, keep the union going. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Keep it going. Um, so what he emphasizes is that idea of creation, specifically the garden. The garden of Eden is like the pinnacle of the creation, right? So the new creation, the new Eden is in Christ. We have a lot of water in John's gospel. Water is virtually almost in every single chapter of John's gospel. We, of course, have in the beginning, we have the well and living water with the Samaritan woman. Wells and water, especially living water, were important for ancient gardens. By the way, ancient gardens were places of perfect joy and rest and peace. They were treasures in a world, especially in a wilderness world like the Middle East. Um, they were treasures and gems, and kings would build gardens in their palaces and such. The, gar- uh, the temple was actually designed to look like a garden. Um, gardens were just places where you could rest. And so John has the garden throughout, the wells, the living water. We have chapter 15, of course. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Um, we have the resurrection only John specifies that Jesus came out of a tomb which was in the middle of a garden. Jesus' resurrection scene is in a new garden. Um, this all reminds us that as Mark takes us to the valley of the shadow of death and we go through these moments where it's dark and we feel abandoned and we're not sure if we can even keep going forward, John is saying, there is another side to the valley. There's another side, and that's where he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That's where he anoints our heads with oil, and our cups overflow. He has a feast for us. He has a house for us. He can heal us. And so John is the other side of this, through the valley and into the garden, where we can eat and grow in new life. So so what John wants us to do is to learn to be in union with Christ. Union with Christ. This is the time we have shed a lot of things. We've changed. We've had to die to a lot of our sins and the bad parts of ourselves. And now we need to be having communion and joy in Christ. So there's a lot of language in John about I and the Father are one and you will be in me and I will be in you. This is the theme. This is how we experience the garden is our union with Christ. Um, some, uh, some warnings, for example, like Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus is warning us that tradition can get in the way of our union with Christ. Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. How can I be born again? And he's like quoting like from his understanding of being a Pharisee. And Jesus is like, you can't see this. You're a teacher and you can't see this. We must not let tradition blind us to the new garden that Christ is inviting us into. Um, Some traditions are good, but some traditions can get in the way. And we have to identify those and get rid of the ones that get in the way. Um, But there's a temptation in John's gospel. We want to live there. We get there and we want to stay there forever. We're in Disneyland finally and I'm never leaving. (laughs) Well, you're never growing either. (laughs) Um, Because one day you're going to have to get out and serve. You're going to have to take this great joy and union you've received. And it has to do something other than make you feel better about yourself. Christ did not come and die and be raised from the dead and conquer death and the devil so that you can feel good about yourself. That's pathetic. There's other things in this world that people turn to that are easier for that. He came into this world to transform us so that we can transform the world. So we must leave the garden, which is why when Mary clings to him in the garden, he says, do not cling to me. Which is why it ends with the disciples going out fishing, because we're to be the fishers of men. And then he calls Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. And so season three comes to a beautiful end, and it's time to go. Season four, the gospel of Luke. So Matthew addresses change. Mark addresses suffering. John addresses joy, union, rest. And Luke addresses service. Go and serve. One of the most overlooked parts of all stories, in my opinion, maybe it's just me, um, is the end of a story. 
the climax like resolves things like yay the good guy beat the bad guy but we forget the final last stage which is when our character comes back to where he started different he comes back as a hero and he has to show we have to be proven in the story that he has grown through his change his suffering and his joy that all this has changed him now he has something to give to the world he goes back to uh, you'll see in a good story the hero goes back to the place he first left and he is now benefiting the people he's returning to this is christ he came he changed in a way right he took on flesh he suffered on the cross he entered into joy and in his resurrection and then his final phase is the ascension He's now doing his service for the church, for the world. He's at the right hand of God. He's ruling and he's interceding for us. Christ returns doing something, blessing the world. We now come to this phase where if we've grown, it's time to grow the world around us. So Luke is, um, Luke is writing in the 80s in Antioch as well, but it's likely that he's not writing for Antioch, but that he's writing for the world. Luke is conscious of the fact that he wants all Christians to read this. He's not, in other words, like pastorally writing to a church as the other gospels probably originally were about. He's like, I'm publishing something for the whole church to read. Um, the prologue even suggests that, but that's another thing. Um, so in Luke's time, the separation from Judaism and Christianity is growing. The wedge is being really divided because, yeah, the, the Jews are like, uh, no, no. Christ is not the Messiah, and the Christians are like yes. And so the Jewish traditions, Jewish Christians, must split from Judaism, or more properly, uh, Judaism splits from the Jewish Christians. Because right, it's not that Christianity is a new religion; it's that Christianity is the fulfillment of what God intended from the beginning. So Judaism splits from what it was supposed to become, and so the Jewish Christians are now um, feeling the hostility from the non-Christian Jews. And Luke has to write to this. Uh, he has to write to the fact that the Roman Empire is now starting to see the difference between the two groups and they're increasingly more hostile toward the Christians and the Jews because the Christians are a threat to the empire. They are everything that empires hate. The Christians are creative. They see the world differently. The empire wants status quo, but the Christians are like, oh no, there's a new world out there. And it's happened through Christ. The Christians are evangelistic. Rome's like, fine, worship who you want. But the Christians are like, don't worship who you want. Betray all those gods and turn to this one God. Uh, the Christ the Rome wants everybody divided and squabbling. They want them in their social classes and the genders to have their roles. And he, they want all these things, right? The Christians are like, oh no, we are all equal in Christ. In fact, we're going to take care of the poor and we don't see divisions. We see us being one family and body. And this is all a threat to an empire's control and power. So Rome is starting to put its thumb increasingly. So as we move from the eighties on their thumb on the Christian church and Luke's writing to all this. Um, so he's writing his, his metaphor throughout. In Matthew, we have the Matthew. Uh, in Matthew, we have the mountain. In Mark, we have the watery wilderness. In Luke, we, in John, we have the garden. And in Luke, we have the road. Because it's time that the church gets on the road. It'll be dangerous. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. But it's time to go and bring this to the world. Um, in Luke, Jesus is always on the go. He's either eating at a table and eating food in someone's house, a lot of that in Luke, or he's on the road from one meal to another. That's literally what Luke does. Food, road, food, road, food, road. Uh, because this is what service for the Christian looks like. Sharing life and then hitting the road and not staying in the garden forever. Moving on. Um, he Luke has a lot of unique parables that the other gospels don't cover. For example, the prodigal son is like a famous one, or the good Samaritan. These are unique to Luke. Uh, Jesus, these are all at points where Jesus is walking through Samaria. He's on the road with his disciples, and what he does is he tells stories. This is what the church is to do. We're to serve the world by mastering the story of Jesus, mastering our stories, and then serving the world by inviting them into growth. Change isn't bad. Suffering is not the end. Joy is here for you to receive. Come and serve the world with us. Um, 
For example, um, Luke begins with um, the two births, John the forerunner and Jesus, right? Zacharias is told you're going to have a son, and Mary is told you're going to have a son. Both of these open up. Why? Because it's time. We have conceived the life of Christ in John's gospel, joy. It's time now to give birth and to bring to maturity that joy which he's given us. Let it grow up and go into the world. So we have this uh, beginning of Luke is saying, grow up. It's time to go. Um, we have the Magnificat. That's the Latin term for Mary's song. The song she sings when she realizes she is going to conceive Christ. Uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and I rejoice in God, my Savior. Um, in that beautiful psalm, it's really a psalm. It's quoting all the psalms all in one new psalm. She um, She's speaking... She's praying the future as if it's already happened. He has cast down his enemies. He's raised the poor up and has sent the rich down. She's saying these things while Christ is still being conceived in her womb. That's because she understands that this is not her work. God's work is at work here. And if he said it, he's as good as going to do it. And this is the attitude we need in this last phase of growth is that it's not we who do the work. It's not we who make service happen. It's we who are looking for where God is at work and we go and do what he's doing there. We trust him to do it. We trust the results to him. We simply give our lives and show up. And in Luke's gospel, surprisingly, much of his work is happening in Samaria between Galilee and Jerusalem as he's on his way to die. In Samaria, where Jews would go out of their way, he's in Samaria and he's, he's, he's talking to Samaritans and he's making the disciples walk slowly through this place because the service we do is where God is. Not what we want to do, not what we're necessarily good at or what we are perfect at. We simply show up where God is and that's how we serve. So, um, the end of Luke is with the ascension of Christ, and we, we are reminded that we serve the ascended king. That's how we serve. We're not serving in the name of Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, or we're not, we're not um, uh, fixing the water situation in this part of Africa in the name of this cool hip church. We are, not, um, we are not going to save all the children who need homes uh, in the name of our really wealthy contributors. We are serving in the name of the risen Christ, period. It's because he's a king and he has a kingdom. And we want to see this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, period. Mm-hmm. So you serve. But watch out. You didn't reach the end. One day on that road, you're going to see change again. And you're going to suffer again. But now you've been through this story before. You know that there's joy. And then you get filled and nourished, and now you're ready to serve at an even higher level. And so it goes. Brothers and sisters, when we came to Christ, we didn't enter into retirement, spiritual retirement. We entered into the beginning of an ongoing growth that will save the world. That's what the Gospels are telling us. They're not writing to convince us Jesus is true. They're writing to people who already believe that. They're writing to help us get off our lazy butts. And I know you're all sitting on your butts, but you'll get up in a moment. (laughs) Um, That's what we need to hear. And so I think it would be cool if we read the gospels this year. I hope you, I know a lot of people have their Bible reading plans and all, but I, I get frustrated with those for a lot of reasons. I've been through many different plans. I only stuck with one, two years in a row and it was great, but it was too excessive for me now at this stage. Um, so, um, Bible reading plans. Anybody read our one from last year? Did you go all the way through? Wow. Good job. That's a, yeah, thank you, Tyler. That's like worthy of applause. Uh, I think Chris, I think there's one other person who went through it as well. I went through like halfway through, and here's what happened to me. I got a lot of nods on that one. Um, here's what happens to me is I don't like the I, I don't I become a slave to the calendar. I become a slave to I'm three days behind or it's this day. And sometimes in prayer I need slower passages. Sometimes in prayer I can cover a lot. I just I need something more. So what I, what I prayed about and came to a conclusion of is I want a reading guideline that says, 
Just read the gospel of Matthew right now at your pace. An hour, I mean, a, a chapter or so a day. Like, sometimes it's half a chapter, sometimes it's two chapters, but just use this time. So this is this is where you can look at it now, and can't see what I'm saying. Use this time until Lent to just be with Matthew, as slow or quickly as you want. If you read five chapters a week, which is less than a chapter a day, you'll go through Matthew twice. Well, that was if you started at Advent, which I didn't... Um, think of until now so oh well you'll probably get through it once but um when lent comes lent is a time we remember the sufferings of christ and we participate through fasting and preparing for easter and so we go through the suffering with mark and for those six weeks we read mark and if again five chapters a week will take you through mark twice that's at a leisurely not having to check the calendar every day kind of pace just enjoy mark um Easter, now we've had the tradition here of reading through John's gospel uh, at our Easter Eve, our Easter vigil service. So John's just married to our Easter season anyways. But so then right after that service, guess what you're reading? The gospel of John for the next uh, eight weeks. It's uh, eight weeks from Easter to Pentecost. Well, it's seven weeks. It's, it's, well, it's 49 days, 50 days. Okay, I'm just making a fool of myself now. It's seven weeks. Um... You, uh, oh yeah, I have it right there. Cool. There you go. You could correct me. Uh, yeah. So again, you could do that and go through John about twice. Um, and here's the season of, of the resurrected Christ of our new life. And so see, we're going through these pattern, the pattern of change, suffering and, and fruit, garden, growth, joy, union with Christ. Um, and then when Pentecost comes, uh, quite fittingly, because that's when the church goes out to serve the world, uh, we then go to the gospel of Luke and Pentecost to Advent is half the year. Um, it's about six months. And so this is where we read Luke, Acts, and the rest of the epistles. Uh, and we just, we just absorb the season. Uh, I'm excited about just the, the flexibility and the casualness of this. Um, and it would be cool. I believe it would be beneficial if the church reads scripture together. I know you might have your plan all figured out, but today's the first. Let's be honest. You probably only just now started to think about how you're going to read the Bible this year. So I'm, t- I'm saving you some work here. <laughs> um, it might be a great idea to consider this. Now, if you have what works for you, I do not want to hinder your growth, right? Something's working for you. Stick with it. If it's not and you're looking and you're open, great. You now have your community of um, us um, reading along together. And we can say, like, what has God been teaching you in Matthew, Cody? And Cody would give me a really long answer. You guys ask Cody questions. That's how it goes. Um, anyways, sorry. <laughs> just picked on you for a moment. Um, you ask Levi, and he might give you a few sentences. And <laughs> anyways, um, so that's my proposition and why I took the time to kind of talk about the four Gospels, because this is why I think it'd be cool to read them in this order and with these seasons is because maybe we can start to see what God's doing in our own lives and in our community as we go through them and let Christ speak through his stories. Remember that Christ is risen. We're not reading stale history. We're reading living testimony. That's what the gospels are. They're living testimony. So Mark can be addressing not just the Roman Christians of the 60s. He's addressing me in my suffering in 2023. And or or Rhonda, uh, and but because I'm in Mark too, we have this shared communion, and so yeah, that's uh, my proposition. If you uh, want to get into scripture more this year, that'll take you through the New Testament this year. Uh, do the Old Testament however you want, or not at all. Uh, it's up to you. <laughs> um, but uh, go read, go pray, read in your prayer time, and then let the Lord speak through scripture. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.